Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is World's Greatest Con. I'm Brian Brushwood. There's this moment. It might have been waiting to find out if you got the job. Might have been asking someone out on a date and waiting to hear back from it. You might be defending your PhD thesis, but I am convinced that the feeling of this moment is absolutely universal and every single one of us has had it. I call it the moment of surrender. And the one thing, the only thing that's peculiar about mine is that it was broadcast on national television and you can watch it right now. On a scale of one to ten? Yeah. Uh, negative five. <laughs> I just want to make them smile. They're smiling right now. Well, that's the worst smile I've ever seen. <laughs> Looking over at Penantella, I can see they've come to the end of their deliberations. I'm on stage in Las Vegas. Network television cameras are rolling all around me. There's a studio audience waiting on me. It would be an understatement to say that there was tension thick in the air as my artistic heroes, Penn and Teller, are about to pass judgment on me. It's that moment of surrender that's often the most telling about a long project, right? You've done all the hard work. All that's left is to find out how you did. It's that moment that you go from totally in control to totally out of it. In my moment, Pendulette leans forward, somebody who I have watched since I was in second grade, and he tells me that I failed. And you could see it on my face. I couldn't be happier to hear it. If you're not familiar with Penn & Teller, they're two legendarily creative performers. There are pretty much only five gods in all of magic, and somehow Penn & Teller managed to be two of them. I don't know how they pulled that off. But they have the show where they dare the best and brightest of all of magic from all over the world to come on stage and try to fool them. It's called Penn & Teller Fool Us, and it's the highest-rated show on the network television channel that it appears on. When I said yes to doing this show, I started a plan. I figured there were two ways you could play an appearance on Fool Us. The first and most obvious way is to legitimately try to fool Penn and Teller with a magic trick. To seriously play magic chess with two grand masters of the art. And there are some magicians that try to do this. Some have even pulled it off. But many, many more fail. And this is because Penn and Teller are very, very good at magic chess. Without getting too far into the world of magic, a trick that fools a magician tends to be 
dense to be charitable, and that's fine for them. To some magicians, the distinction of fooling Penn and Teller means the world. But for me, it felt like a big waste of an opportunity. Which brings us to the second way you can play a Fool Us appearance. The way I played it. And Brian Brushwood from Austin, Texas. It's not until halfway through cutting off my tongue that people realize, wait a minute, it's a magic show. Instead of focusing on the stated objective of the show to fool Penn and Teller, you understand the real prize. The real prize is the hearts and minds of the people who are watching at home. Again, this is a very highly rated show. You have to make a routine that's designed to delight and entertain, to showcase the best of you, not to fool, because anything you do that attempts to accomplish both is almost certainly going to do neither. Yes, at the end of the routine, Penn's going to tell you that he knows how your trick is done. So what? Who cares? Meanwhile, there are millions of people watching, and they will remember how much fun they had with you. In this moment, everybody thinks that you're focused on whether or not you fooled them. The truth is, you're only wondering if you've won their approval. Because if you've won their approval, you've won the approval of the millions who are ready to agree with them. And that's where I am, right here, on stage, completely surrendered. Smiling right now. Well, that's the worst smile I've ever seen. <laughs> Looking over at Penantella, I can see they've come to the end of their deliberation, so I'm going to phone. I'm watching my two childhood heroes whisper to each other, and Penn is about to speak. Waiting in that moment was agony. But this, this was ecstasy. We are huge fans before you even came out here, and the bribe did not hurt. Uh, we did psychic surgery, which is what you were doing there, on Conan O'Brien's show, and Teller did the moves to reach in and pull the stuff out of Conan's stomach, and uh, I think you did it better. <laughs> We do know how that's done. We also, uh, we have a pretty good idea. You're waiting to hear if you got the job. You're waiting for that text message that says, sure, with a smiley, winky face. You're waiting to find out that you are a PhD. It's the same moment. It's that moment of surrender. And Montague and Chumley are in that exact spot right now in our story. They've sent the fictitious Bill Martin to his death in Spain, the final product of months of effort and military ingenuity. And now they have to wait. There are no more levers to pull. They're standing alone on stage. That moment of surrender is bracketed by two mountains. That canyon of waiting is surrounded to the left. On the one side, you have the moment that you have to give it up. You have to let go. And that other mountain where the superposition collapses and finally you have an answer. You find out how well you did. Now for me, live on stage on a reality competition show, what is that, a minute, two minutes? But for Chumley and Montague, they have to sit with that, that discomfort for three full weeks. 
which has to be torture, because it turns out that all of their hard work might be for nothing. These documents aren't guaranteed to make it all the way to the desk of Hitler. They might not fool him. The tens of thousands of lives that they hope to save might be lost despite all of their best efforts. And there's nothing they can do about it. Cons don't fool us because we're stupid. They fool us because we're human. And this... This might be the world's greatest con. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. You remember the show that Bill Martin, our fictitious war hero, he was going to go see, right? The one that would prove he was in London? Well, tonight's the night it actually happens. Now, since Bill Martin is currently stuffed in a tube inside a submarine, he's got some other people taking his place, right? Montague and the beautiful secretary, Jean Leslie, arm in arm, right up to the ticket taker. Behind them, Chumley and another 20 committee secretary. Between the four of them, they have two complete tickets and two tickets lacking stubs because those are the ones in Bill's pocket. But still, they are all four going to attempt to gain entry. When they do get to the ticket-taking guy, he looks at this hot mess of half-torn-apart tickets, and Montague decides to explain, Oh, well, while I can understand this is a bizarre situation, it's easily explained. By the time I laid eyes upon these tickets for the show tonight, two of the tops were already ripped. It must have been some kind of mistake. The ticket taker leaves to consult the manager. Of course, the entire story is a lie, but for this gatekeeper... Montague knows he needs to put all his effort into that first impression, the tableau. Both Chumley and Montague are military dress, and their dates are decked to the nines. I mean, who's going to step in the way of that? Ticket ticker guy and the manager, they both come back. They apologize for the delay, lets them in. Another win for the tableau. It's a rollicking show filled with singing, dancing, laughs. After the final curtain... 
the double date go for a nightcap at the Gargoyle Club, which sounds like something I would have made up. But it wasn't. This is a bittersweet moment for Chumley and Montague because within a few hours, Bill Martin is going to be found dead. Meanwhile, they're sitting and having drinks at the Gargoyle Club where Bill Martin was born. Long Nights at the Club was where Montague and Chumley dreamed up every element of Martin, the fictitious military official destined to be discovered by the Nazis. Amongst the backstory of Martin as a dashing soldier in love would be the poison pill. These falsified letters between Allied High Command that the laughably obvious target of Sicily was a feint and the real offensive would come for both Greece and Sardinia on their way to the Balkans. I mean, do you think they knew they'd done it in this moment? Or do you think they knew that it didn't matter either way? Their job was done. I have to assume they experienced that moment of surrender. Chumley buys a round of drinks to Bill Martin. And after they drink, Chumley looks at his watch and says... I wonder if he's afloat yet. He was. A plan, this plan, years in gestation and weeks in intense preparation was about to commence. An offering by the 20 committee that, if successful, could save thousands of lives and end the war was officially out of their hands. Now, what the double daters didn't know in that moment was that this plan was working better than they'd hoped. Which almost derails everything. Spain! All right. Let's talk about Spain for a second. During World War II, Spain is technically neutral, despite being under the control of a strongman dictator, Franco. But Italy and Germany, they're the ones that were supporting Franco during his rise to power. So while Spain is officially not in the fight, his support is tilted toward the Axis powers. Let's break down what that means. First of all, top man loves Hitler. Okay, great. That means the army from which this guy came is sympathetic to the Nazis. That means the rank and file police would be fascist friendly. But not everyone in Spain loves Hitler, not even within the military. The plan to get Bill Martin into Spanish hands runs exactly like the 20 committee drew it up. Just like we talked about, the body really is found by a fisherman. The fisherman really does call a doctor. The doctor recognizes by the smell alone that the man's dead. But here's where the plan works too well. Instead of the doctor calling the cops like the 20 committee had hoped, he reaches out directly to the Spanish Navy. Now, the Spanish Navy is by far the most pro-British part of the military. 
This is a huge problem because the Spanish Navy will go out of their way to play fair. And fair means the British get their top secret documents back ASAP. If the Nazis don't have their sympathizers in the organization that has the body, then they might not ever get their hands on the information. The very next day, Bill Barton's corpse is brought to a local cemetery for the official autopsy. Picture it, a hot Spanish spring morning, sweaty medical area under a tin roof. You got five witnesses there. A British official, the doctor, the doctor's son who's also a doctor, a Spanish Navy guy, and an American pilot who just by coincidence happened to have crash landed a few days earlier and tags along just to see if he happens to recognize the body. Of the five folks there, our British official doesn't know the entire mincemeat plan, but he does know his part. Get that briefcase into Spanish hands so the Nazis could take the bait. Which makes it really awkward when the Spanish official offers our guy the briefcase. Hey, oh, by the way, this looks like important documents. Please take it. Go ahead. It's right there. This is going to blow the entire freaking plan. If our British official does the most natural thing in the world and say, oh, well, thank you for the documents that obviously belong to us. So our guy, our British official, he channels every ounce of Britishness in him and insists everyone follow proper procedure. The Spanish Navy, they should record that they found the briefcase and then return it to the British. Okay, one massive bullet dodged. Now, the autopsy, or hopefully the lack of a thorough autopsy. The glancing of the body is what I think everybody's hoping for. Because remember, they've done pretty good, but anybody who knows what they're doing will figure out that this is not a fresh body. This is a frozen thawed corpse that is months old. And that is the last thing anyone should know. They make the first incision into the corpse of Bill Martin. And what follows is an explosion of compressed air. Vile, noxious odor from a month-old cadaver that was dead, frozen, transported through the entire vertical length of Europe, sunk into the water, baked in the sun, shown up on the beachside, and now ruptured. That stench fills the humid shack. Can you imagine that moment? Can you imagine almost thanking our British official when he steps in and says, upon his authority, the military for which this man just died formally requests, stop it. (laughs) No more open. Good God, can we stop this medical investigation? So if the doctor could just really quick make your judgment for the cause of death, that'd be great because good God, ew. And the Spanish doctor does just that. According to him, Bill Martin died falling out of a plane and drowning. As far as anyone knows, from here on, that part of the story is now canon, a massive win for the 20 committee. Everyone disperses, 
which I believe is World War II talk for GTFOing. Later that day, Bill Martin is buried with full military honors. The anonymous death of Glendower Michael is transformed into a ceremony for a full-blown war hero. Locals come to pay their respects. Also there, our British official, who's been a little bit busy ever since the autopsy, spending his time since Martin was found flooding channels that he knew were monitored by the Nazis, saying that the Brits believed their mystery man found in the ocean was one of their own. And I know what you're wondering. Yes. His breadcrumbs had been followed. Also attending the funeral was Adolf Klaus, the Nazi intelligence operative known to be in Huelva. In all of the planning of the 20 committee, they were counting on Klaus being competent enough to get the information. It's a tricky situation. You don't want somebody who's bad at their job to have the information just pass right on by. You want them to recognize gold when they see it. You don't want somebody so hypervigilant because they might sniff out the ruse either. You need somebody efficient. Somebody who will get the information, pass it up the chain as fast as possible. That was Klaus. Within one day, he had already alerted the head of Nazi intelligence in Spain that he was going to get whatever information he could on the body. Another day later, he had secured a list of the items found on the body, but nothing else. So it's now three days since Martin landed. Back in London, I got to imagine Montague and Chumley are losing their minds. I'm picturing him chain-smoking, knees-bobbing, thinking about the fact that this information was supposed to be in the Nazi hands in minutes, hours, not days. They didn't really plan on the Spanish Navy being the ones in control of all of this, the one group of friends they actually had in all of Spain. Of course, they couldn't just let that team in on the ruse. Just because they're friendly doesn't mean they're leak-proof. So they hit that wall and they finally make the decision. They got a goose along the process. They send a transmission to our British officer, the one in Huelva, but they send it on a channel that they knew was monitored. His orders are unambiguous. Get the documents in the briefcase because they are of a tremendous amount of value. That's the part they want the Nazis to hear. The 20 committee follows up in a back channel saying that while our British officials should be firm with the Navy, don't be too demanding. Otherwise, they might actually hand it over. The Nazis got our fake message loud and clear. Klaus now has a firm target. Get whatever is in that briefcase. Moreover, his bosses knew something of value was right there in Huelva which only makes it all the more humiliating when, try as he might, dude fails. I mean, he gets pictures of the pocket litter, but nothing that was inside any kind of sealed envelopes, which on day four was officially transferred out of Huelva en route to Madrid, where Spanish naval intelligence was about to finally deal with it. It's weird to put it this way, but this is really bad. The 20 committee is just one step away from Operation Mincemeat being a total disaster. 
You can't con an honest John. Remember that. We began with that. The 20 committee, they need this to fall into the hands of people who are going to do the wrong thing. Leak it to the Nazis. So every mile these documents get closer to Madrid in neutral, fair hands is a potential time bomb for the 20 committee. The Spanish Navy are about to do the one thing that will ruin everything, and that's play by the rules. And that means that the only person who could rescue at this moment Operation Mincemeat is the most powerful and influential Nazi intelligence officer in all of Spain, Carl Eric Kuhlenthal. The problem is, he's the George Costanza of our story. Kuhlenthal is a dandy. He manicures his nails, rides around Madrid in a fancy car. He was well-regarded in Nazi leadership, specifically Heinrich Himmler. He loved him. He thought the guy was a virtuoso, discovering every little nugget of information, bringing it back to leadership. But Kuhlenthal was far from the best. Now, Kuhlenthal did bring back a lot of information, but the problem was that a lot of it was garbage. For example, one day, random dude comes into Nazi intelligence office in Madrid, gets to sit down with Kuhlenthal, starts railing about how much he hates the Brits. Oh, I hate the British. Oh, I love Hitler. Oh, the Nazis, they're going to destroy their enemies. Kuhlenthal recognizes talent when he sees it. And he agrees to send the man to England as a spy. A week after our newly minted spy leaves, Kuhlenthal gets a letter. The new spy says, it's me, your new spy. I'm in England. I'm ready to work. In order to ensure their communications are secure, I've already networked with someone in Lisbon, Portugal. That'll be the relay point for all the letters. That's right. All communication will come through Portugal from England. All the money in the operation should just, just keep on sending that money to Portugal. Dude never went to England. He went to Portugal. He just wrote a bunch of bullshit to Kuhlenthal in exchange for money that was being sent to keep the scoops coming. The information was garbage, which becomes a point of fascination for British intelligence who are monitoring every bit of intel coming into Kuhlenthal. Who is writing this nonsense? And why was Kuhlenthal believing it? British intelligence eventually finds the guy. And they legit move him to England. Rope him in as a double agent. Codenaming him Garbo. As in Greta Garbo, the actress. Not for the Garbo-edge information he was doing. Although that would work too. The Brits knew that Kuhlenthal would pass along the mincemeat information. Because he was already passing on fake information. And there was a reason Kuhlenthal was so eager to be seen as somebody who always had the intel... He needed to for survival. Kuhlenthal was half Jewish. And even though he'd already gone through every official channel to have his bloodline declared pure, whatever that means, he was never going to be in Nazi leadership in Germany. In fact, the closer he got to Berlin, the more likely it was that the powers that be would turn against him. So he found a safe little outpost in Spain, started making himself useful. 
Even if his desire to be seen as a crucial link in the chain led to the propagation of completely false information. The real M from the James Bond series, John Godfrey, he once said that twin fatal flaws of a spy are wishfulness and yesmanship. Hulenthal had both in spades. Now, while Kielenthal could be relied upon to pass the mincemeat information up the chain, there was no assurances that he had the wherewithal to actually secure it. So we're at five days since Bill Martin hits the shores of Huelva. The Nazis still don't have the information laid out for him. At the 20 committee offices, Montague's starting to get annoyed. He complains about little things, how low the ceilings are, how loud the office is, how overworked he is. Across the continent, Nazi intelligence, they're on fire. The acquisition of the contents of this briefcase is now a top concern and it's all hands on deck. Nazi intelligence in Portugal is called in, as well as the Gestapo. If anyone has a connection to anyone in the Spanish Navy, now is the time to call in the favor. A power play is made by leveraging the head of Spanish counterintelligence. He attempts to secure the briefcase, just as it's being held in San Fernando on the way to Madrid. And he fails. Only coming back with pictures of everything else in the briefcase, but crucially, none of the sealed letters. And another day goes by. And another. And another. The briefcase makes it from San Fernando to Madrid. Now this is a failure point the 20 committee didn't foresee. The Nazis need to be competent enough to secure the package. They're Nazis. The whole reason they're a problem is because they're good enough, usually, to be really awful and dangerous people. And now is when they're going to screw everything up and totally just fail at achieving their one goal. This is how close the whole operation came to failure. The information is in the hands of Spanish intelligence. Their next job is to hand it over to the British. On the eighth day, it's at this very last moment that Spanish intelligence walks over and hands the information to the Nazis. In Madrid, the letters were removed from the bottom of the envelopes, leaving the seals intact. Now, technically, Kulenthal, he's not the head of intelligence in Spain. That title belongs to an older guy, right? And it's the older guy who first comes in contact with the intel. He spoke English, so he read the missives. He immediately was suspicious of them. Specifically that they were mentioning the code name of an operation in the exact same letter where they're disclosing their targets. It was either uncharacteristically sloppy or too perfect. But all of those worries are washed away the second Kulenthal gets his hands on the information. I'm certain he's thinking, dude, if the scraps that Garbo's passing me is making me a favorite, this stuff's going to make me a star. 
His report to German high command was explosive. He relished in every random, overwrought 20-committee detail, putting a big, fat Nazi rubber stamp on every piece of evidence provided. He even added stuff. Kulenthal tells high commands that the pilot of the plane itself had been captured and was being interrogated, which wasn't even a true thing. The plane and the pilot never existed. Crucially, he sweetened one key detail. He said, of all things, the show tickets which technically were dated on the 22nd, were instead for a London show on the 27th. The body was found on the 30th. This made information five days more relevant, although possibly complicated the story of why the corpse looked so horrendously decomposed. Who cares? Who cares? Kulenthal is summoned to Berlin personally. He's in to brief the high command on his findings. I want to make something perfectly clear here because we've been working up to this for four episodes now. The con man gets the moment of surrender. All the hard work is done and it's up to the mark to fool himself. The mark gets the gut feeling. A powerful instinct honed over hundreds of thousands of years of evolution. What do we mean when we say, I just had a gut feeling? I mean, this whole story began with me telling you guys about how I ignored my gut not to trust this random weirdo with a white van to buy some fake speakers that turned out to be garbage. Instead, I let the fantasy drive me to do something that I knew was a bad idea. And in the process, I got made the sucker. The human mind is this incredible, vast, fascinating, weird organ. So much of what we know is buried beyond what we can articulate. That hunch, that intuition, that gut feeling, that instinct is often the rest of our mind bubbling up around the edges of a logical process. You don't got the words, but you know it. You feel it. And it's verifiable. In 2016, Italian researchers recorded a bunch of people grabbing a water bottle. Half of them were told to drink out of it, and the other half were told to pour it into a cup. The researchers then showed a few seconds of those videos to new people. Specifically, it was edited so that the clip just ended right before the first volunteers touched the bottle. The folks watching the video, they were then asked, did they drink from the bottle or did they pour it into the glass. The video watchers guessed correctly beyond statistical chance. There was something in the movement or the face or in their eyes or their intention. There's something that correctly guided those viewers to the right choice, even knowing they were totally guessing. And this goes even farther. In his book, The Gift of Fear, security expert Gavin DeBecker, he says that our intuition is literally designed to save our lives. Think about it, man. We ain't got long teeth. We don't have sharp claws. We don't have thick scales. We're not very fast. Honed over thousands of years of evolution, 
we have one thing going for us. Intuition. It's the key reason why humans are the dominant species on the entire planet. And Gavin's message is if you want to avoid predators, you listen to your gut. Humans have one gift. We're very good at knowing how to stay alive. De Becker says that the most common way we get ourselves into trouble, sometimes violent or deadly trouble, is when we ignore that gut feeling, that instinct, in favor of modern sensibilities. You don't want to leave a crowded nightclub because people might think you're being rude. Trusting your intuition, that gut instinct, gets you out of trouble. Ignoring it is what gets you into it. Now, statistically, our gut feelings can be as wrong as often as they're right. Gut feeling can be a breeding ground for prejudices or convenient solutions to complicated problems. Yes, they are definitely not a cure-all. Hell, we just talked about how Killenthal's gut feeling is that every slice of information that comes his way must be totally true, and that didn't make him a better spy. But the question is, is there one moment when gut feelings are most valuable? I can already hear you smiling because, of course, the answer is yes. And it's very relevant to everything we've talked about in the last four episodes. Gut feelings can aid you in a crisis situation when data and further discussion is redundant or impossible. You don't have time to say it out loud or talk it out or Socratic dialogue, blah, 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 blah. You just know what needs to happen. And cons are reliant on manufactured crisis moments just like this. Gut intuition is something that can literally keep you ahead of the game. No matter what con job you ever hear about, there is one universal truth. Whether you're buying stolen speakers out of the back of a white van or shaping the future of the Third Reich, it's the fact that the con man has a moment of surrender And that the mark's only protection is that gut feeling that this ain't right. Dissect what you can, but in the spur of the moment, trust your instincts. And keep all of this in mind as our lie travels to Berlin. Because you can learn a lot by keeping track of who is acting on instinct and who is overthinking it. So far, we've narrowly avoided disaster at the autopsy. We got the information in the hands of the Nazis. This Plinko chip, when it was first dropped, it seems to just ricochet far away from the grand prize before reversing course. Now, despite the bizarre route, it now looks like it's going to be on a very promising path. The 20 committee failed, but in the process, made their information all the more tantalizing, all the more believable, all the more important. Kulenthal being excited to take full credit, that's fantastic. And as our final prize comes into focus, there's yet another reason for us to start smiling. Hitler is pissed. 
He's just lost one-eighth of his troops, all of his troops in North Africa. He's now losing the naval battle, and that's on top of the Eastern Front being more and more of a disaster. Functionally, he's becoming more distrustful of his generals. He thinks all of them are disloyal and competent. He needs good news. Sound familiar? What's more, this good news is something he can actually use to shame his other generals. Hey, dummies, y'all are reinforcing the wrong area. Thankfully, good old Hitler, your boy, is here to tell you what to do. Hell yeah. This is something he can believe in. Just one problem. Our last gatekeeper before Hitler himself. The Goro to his Shang Tsung, Alexis Baron von Ruhner, the head of Nazi army intelligence. Von Ruhner had developed a reputation for being able to divine all the intentions of the Allies. His method involved gathering a bunch of small points of data, coming to his own conclusion. Instead of believing the big truths from intelligence, instead, he grabbed a bunch of those small truths from the origins of those findings, and from there he made his own conclusions. Von Ruhner is in every way the opposite of Kulenthal. He's very, very good at spotting bullshit, and he might treat our information more suspiciously if Kulenthal is touting it. If there's any little flaw here, he's going to notice it. If there's too many flourishes... He'll sniff them out. He's also Hitler's most trusted intelligence analyst. What von Ruhner says is what Hitler believes. Okay, we got to pause here to point something out. We try our best to put the facts of a story first. And there's plenty of dramatizations of personalities. But I'm trying to keep those in the greater truth as we know it. The next bit here is nothing but a guess. It's undefined by any official documents. It is not confirmed by Ben McIntyre's book, and I sure as hell don't have any rock-solid details. But here it is. Alexis Baron von Runner. Our last, most challenging gatekeeper between the 20 Committee and Hitler hated Hitler and wanted to sabotage the Nazi effort and put it to a permanent end. He was a monarchist and believed the Nazis to be a bunch of thugs. If this is true, it begs a very interesting question. Why would von Ruhner be in Nazi leadership, let alone the most trusted intelligence official in Hitler's side? Who knows? We do know that during the run-up to D-Day, this guy massively overinflated troop counts, which was something crucial to helping the Allied victory. Von Ruhner, he was not tied to that attempt to kill Hitler on July 20th, 1944, the one that inspired that 2008 movie Valkyrie. But for the Gestapo, seemed close enough. Von Ruhner is among the 7,000 that were arrested after the plot and among the nearly 5,000 killed for it. In his final message to his wife, he decried the Nazi regime and he gets executed in public. 
the murder is filmed for Hitler's personal collection. But that's years from this moment. We'll never know what's going through von Runer's head right now at this moment as he pours over the documents created by Chumley and Montague. Is he buying this? Does he chuckle when he's reading this weird soap opera subplot? Does he see this for the total con that it obviously is? And if he does think it's a hoax, and to be honest, I believe he would. Does he recognize that this is the perfect poison pill to feed Hitler? May 11th, Von Runer does a full review of the 20 Committee ruse and officially buys everything. Specifically that the Germans had two to three weeks to reinforce Greece before the British invasion. Furthermore, they're going to fake reinforcing Sicily. Von Runer, the Allies whisperer, even puts his stamp on his report saying, yep, definitely not a plant and should totally be regarded as super legitimate. Just one more stop. Three weeks after Bill Martin has hit the shores of Spain, the documents hit the only desk that matters. Adolf Hitler reads the report from von Runer, page after page after page. He finishes, closes the file, and he turns to a trusted confidant and says... I won't try to do a Hitler impression here, but some version of, couldn't this be a corpse they just deliberately planted? Let's stop one last time. From the beginning of this story, I told you, cons don't fool us because we're stupid. They fool us because we're human. And there is no greater example of this. We're talking about the biggest villain in modern human history. And he's asking the exact right question that he should. His gut is telling him, this sounds like a con. And that's exactly what it is. Oh, I don't know though. There's all these incompetent generals and the embarrassment of the losses in Africa Possibility of the Soviet quagmire continuing. I mean, this looks like good news, right? Why shouldn't Hitler believe it? And just like that, in that moment, the 20 committee had him. Hitler, ignoring his gut reaction, instead focusing on the narrative The narrative that would benefit himself, of course. We don't know what else was said during that meeting. But that same day, Hitler issued a directive that Sardinia and the Peloponnese are now the highest value targets of the Allies. This sets off a massive wave of reaction from the rest of the German intelligence community. 
At this point, they start a re-examination of all of the evidence that led Hitler to this whatever is happening right now. They discover Kulenthal's shortcuts and all of his embellishments. Kulenthal starts defending himself like his life depends on it, because it does. Even famous Nazi propagandist Joseph Goebbels looks over the 20 committee's work and says, yeah, bro, this smells like bullshit. (laughs) But what could Goebbels do? Tell Hitler that he can't have the narrative that he wanted? The one that benefited him? More than that, what if Goebbels was wrong? That'd be the end. So he kept his opinions to himself. On May 12th, the 20 committee found out that the Germans were moving troops. An explosion of emotion came over this small cramped quarters. All of this, the planning, the writing, the staging, the getting a frozen corpse foot into a boot, all of it, it worked. Did it happen because of the imagination of Fleming? The conception of Chumley? The illustration of Montague, the incompetence of Kulenthal, the treachery of Von Runner. Sure, why not? All of those. No, wait, hell, hell no, none of those. Some of them, all of them, who cares? Nothing could have happened without every piece of this puzzle. Something this big is beyond any single effort. What an effort it was. The Nazis, they really bought it, man. Famed general, the Desert Fox, Erwin Rommel, is sent from Sicily to Greece to assume command. It's hard not to laugh. The Germans transfer a group of R-boats, those are German minesweepers and mine layers, from Sicily, and they lay three additional minefields off the Greek coast. They move three panzer divisions to Greece. Get giddy even listing this stuff. All preparing for a war that would never arrive. Instead, the real Operation Husky is an unqualified success. Oh my God, it worked! Hitler just got played! Just like they drew it up! In your face, Hitler! Oh God. The Allies only suffer 5,532 deaths out of their 160,000 strong offensive. They are so overwhelming that many Italian troops begin giving up their positions right there on the spot, which leads to another massive reason why Husky is known as a success. So humiliated is Italy by the invasion that its own people rise up and topple Benito Mussolini within three weeks of Allied boots hitting the ground. This disaster forces Hitler to divert forces over to Italy, where they're now an occupying force. By the end of the war, one-fifth of the entire Nazi army was in Southern Europe trying to clean up the mess caused by mincemeat. All in that one moment. The moment when the story you want to believe overtakes what you know in your gut. 
you know is right. The stakes are massive, but the game's always the same. And this time, the world's greatest villain, Adolf Hitler, fell victim to what was quite possibly the world's greatest con. This episode of World's Greatest Con was written by Justin Robert Young and me, Brian Brushwood, your humble host. Produced by Dog and Pony Show Audio, special credit goes to Operation Mincemeat, the book by Ben McIntyre, where we got most of our information. By the way, of course, you've got questions. We want to give you answers, so send them in right now to worldsgreatestcon at gmail.com. Next episode is going to be a real special one. You're going to meet my co-creator and partner in crime. You're going to get a peek behind the curtain of exactly how all of this came together. Why we selected the stories. You're going to get to hear all the little bits and pieces that didn't quite fit in, but are awesome in and of themselves. We're going to answer all the questions and comments that you guys have been sending in since we started asking for them. And most importantly, we're going to discuss where we go next. As I record this, since day one of the launch, we remain the number one top trending podcast in all of Pocket Casts. Justin and I didn't know how good this was going to be and how much you guys would love it. And we want to share with you the vision for the future. So drop us an email. And in the meantime, find one friend that you think would like this podcast and share it with them because I have a feeling we're on to something big here. We'll see you next episode. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods, for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.